Welcome to Simply Christian, a podcast diving deep into the essentials of the Christian faith, heresies, and everything in between. I'm Isaac. And I'm John. Top of the morning, bro. Top of the morning to you, brother. Yeah. How you feeling? Sleepy? I'm feeling sleepy. <laughs> well, it's good. We're talking about soul sleep. All right. So I get could your, use some of that. Get man. your coffee. Oh, I know. I need some soul sleep. My soul is tired. <laughs> but we're alive in Christ. Um, and so what we're going to be ta- talking about today is just that soul sleep. Um, maybe many of you have heard this doctrine floating around. Um, and the question basically is this. Where are our loved ones? Or we could even say where are non-loved ones who have died? <clears throat> have they... Those who died, kind of have they died and departed, and their spirit is now, as some people teach, sleeping. The, uh, you know, the doctrine that will say that our loved ones are simply sleeping. They're currently without any consciousness. They're resting maybe in the memory of God, awaiting the day of the future resurrection. Or is it maybe as you've been taught in church and historic Christianity that our loved ones who have died in Christ are now with Jesus Christ in his presence um, how do we see this? Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So why don't we give a tables of, table of contents for this episode? Um, so we will articulate what we confess and hold to, what the Bible teaches. Um, we'll explore the Bible passages and ideologies that proponents of soul sleep will use to promote their view. Um, we'll then crush them with the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this will actually, you know, really nicely set up, um, our discussion for our next episode where we talk about the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's going to be, it's going to be awesome. Um, yeah. and then of course we'll deal with some common objections since Alessia, um, really likes this. <laughs> <Alessia>. <laughs> yeah. Shout out. Um, yeah. So, uh, what level do we, we we put this on, John, though, on our theological triage? Yeah. So, <clears throat> and I'm glad we call it quadrage because this is, to me, it's a level four. Um, I believe that somebody can hold to the doctrine of soul sleep and hasn't really touched anything crazy essential. They still believe in a resurrection. They still believe in eternity. They still believe in the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, um, the cross, the gospel, everything that we would hold near and dear to essentials of the Christian faith. But... They just believe that after you after you die, whether you're righteous or unrighteous, you're in a place of sleep awaiting a future judgment, and it might go by in a blink of an eye, just like when you fall asleep, your head hits the pillow, and you wake up the next morning, and it's just like twinkling of an eye, and you're woken up, and then the judgment. I think the only thing I would say to our listeners is if you do come across anybody who is a proponent of this doctrine, that typically... This is going to go hand in hand with some other things. Um, The so-called Jehovah's Witnesses are big proponents of this doctrine um, of soul sleep, that, um, you know, the the dead are in the memory of God. Also, you get Seventh-day Adventists. um, And not to fully write off with a stroke of a pen those Seventh-day Adventists like we would maybe with with the Witnesses, but... There's still some sketchy, iffy things that I would say just be cautious about. And so if somebody is coming to you with this view, don't be like, oh, John says level four, doesn't matter. And just I'm going to wrap my arms around this brother or sister right here. Be watchful and ask some more questions because typically this does go hand in hand with some other iffy things. But by itself, in isolation, I, I think this is a level four issue. Yeah. 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 I could see that. I could see some, depending, I think it could also be level three only because it would affect pastoral counseling, I think. Mm, mm-hmm. But yeah, definitely mm-hmm. 
one of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right in there somewhere. Yeah, yes. but it's definitely yeah. not something you should leave leave a church over. I don't think, unless your conscience is yes demanding that. But yes, yep. But yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, yes. So um, we should start with what we believe, mm-hmm. just so people know that on the front end. Yeah, if it wasn't obvious already. So <laughs> essentially, what we believe is when when a person dies, their soul. If they are in Christ, then their soul is with God, consciously, in the presence of God. They don't have the physical new body yet that will come later at the resurrection when Christ returns. Mm -hmm. But they are conscious, um, and they are um, with with God in His presence right now. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what we would believe. And on the flip side of that, we would believe that um, although those who are not in Christ, are not in hell necessarily, because that is, again, last judgment. We Mm -hmm. do believe they are in a place of conscious torment still. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep, yep, exactly. Yeah, so there's a a very clear distinction there that that we are going to be reunited with our physical bodies, and we hold to that, maybe just like a proponent of soul sleep would, they'd say, a future resurrection. We just believe that the soul departs and goes and is in the presence of the Lord, or the the unrighteous, their soul goes to a place of judgment, but they are awaiting a future resurrection with their bodies, for right. sure. Yep. And so, uh, this is straightforward. You might ask, why would anybody disagree with this? Here's what we'll say. We're just going to kind of just unpack a little bit of what proponents of soul sleep might argue. Some things that you'll hear, some common scriptures, um, and what we'll consider misunderstandings, um, but we'll kind of just try to do a fair layout of what they would present. Um, So again, we're just going to say, I'm going to say it's a misunderstanding, but they will view the many passages that talk about the future resurrection, and they see these passages as referring to a resurrection of our soul and body, rather than just our body. And I'm just going to repeat that because it's important. They see all of the passages that talk about a future resurrection, they see them as passages referring to a resurrection of our soul and body rather than just our body. So let's look at some scriptures that might get presented. Um, and back when I was uh, attending a kingdom hall with the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses, I remember during, during a Q&A session um, at the end of all their meetings, they have a time when people will basically read through a book and, and anybody in the congregation can raise their hand. They come over with a microphone and they'll share some thoughts. And they were talking about soul sleep in that particular meeting. And uh, Revelation 20 was a passage that was cited in support of this. And, you know, and just on face level, to be fair, you know, it's not like this is outlandish if you're going to read this and come to this conclusion. Um, Revelation chapter 20, um, you have the great uh, white throne judgment, and God is um, opening the books. Then you pick up in verse 13, and it says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. So the I remember the lady who was speaking said, so it wouldn't make any sense if they were already with God. Would did God send them back down into the sea? Then he raised them again. Like if they were already with God, why would he need to raise them again? And so again, we'll, we'll get to this. I just want to present some of their pas- their passages. But I hope you'll already notice a fundamental difference because we said, their bodies will be raised. Yes, we just don't believe that their soul is in their bodies. We believe their soul has gone to be with God. And so when a resurrection passage like this comes, we're saying amen to it because they're gonna God's gonna raise our bodies. The sea, 
the, every place that a person's dead body is, God is going to bring it back and resurrect it. And then everybody is going to be reunited to every soul. But they, they use this passage. Um, another one is just right there in Revelation chapter 20, uh, verses 4 and 5. And this is a very disputed passage. Maybe when we get to the millennium and we talk about end times, this will be a great <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. passage for us to, mm-hmm. to discuss. It's a very anchor passage for all millennial discussions. But Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5 um, say this. So, it says that uh, everybody who has not worshipped the beast or his image had not received the mark on their forehead or their hand, and they came to life. Emphasis on that. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. And so again, they say, aha, no one has come to life, but the other, these other dead who were resurrected came to life, implying that they weren't alive. So how can we say that they are alive with Christ in heaven when right now the Bible's telling us that they came to life and others did not come to life? Um, and to be fair, can be somewhat uh, persuasive, absolutely. Um, and just to give you one more, just one more example of this, and there, there are others, but these will kind of suffice. First Thessalonians chapter 4, um, and you have this wonderful, beautiful passage that is very near and dear to many people's hearts. You know, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. Um, and we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so he will bring with those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. You know, soul sleep. He's going to bring those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say that by the word of the Lord, we who are alive and remain until the coming will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, here's a a big emphasis. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will remain and be caught up together with them in the clouds and will be with the Lord always. And so again, the emphasis will be said here is, see, they're asleep. Um, and The dead in Christ will rise first. If they're already with Jesus, what do you need to raise them for? It's kind of pointless. They're already with Jesus. Why is he raising them? And then we're going to shortly follow after those who are still alive at the time of his coming. Why, why would you even say this? And so to put, just again, to be fair, you know, I think you can kind of pre- present a, a, a biblical argument and I can see how some people get there. Um, but hopefully in the rest of this episode, we can kind of unpack that and show how there's a much better understanding and interpretation of these passages. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not like we're we are rejecting those passages as <laughs> yeah. what the Bible teaches. We we would just understand them differently. Yes, we would understand them as talking about our souls being united to our resurrected bodies. Yes. Yes. So, Amen. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Um, so how how would we defend this this view, our view of things, John? Yeah. Okay. So. One thing that's, I think, incredibly important is to unpack the idea of what is the soul? Is the soul encapsulate the entirety of our being? If you say your soul, are you meaning every part of you, body and soul, and depending on your view, spirit included? Or is soul something distinct from the body? Does it encapsulate everything? Now, I'm going to argue that there is a strong distinction and although there are passages where um, soul is used more generically and generally, um, that Jesus hones in and precisely uses this in a very surgical way. 
the word soul. If you look at Matthew chapter 10, Jesus kind of zooms in, whereas other Bible writers sometimes use the term more generically. Jesus gives us a very specific view on the soul. And beautiful passage, one of my favorites, Matthew chapter 10. But just looking specifically at verse 28, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. So right off the bat, he's drawing a very strong distinction. He's saying some people can kill the body. If what he meant, if the soul encapsulates all of us, this would be kind of silly to say, don't fear those who can kill the soul, but can't kill the soul. No, he's saying they can kill the body. They can come up and shoot you in the head, do any means of execution or torture or murder to you, but they can't touch your soul. Your soul is untouchable from a human's perspective. All they can do is kill the body, but they are unable to kill the soul. But then he says, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both, both soul and body in hell. And so I want to just say that this is going to be a very big anchor passage for where we go with this is that Jesus, again, zooms in and gives a very specific and draws a lot of clarity to the word soul and says that although we sometimes use this generically in reference to the whole human being, which we'll get to hopefully in some of the common objections, in a very specific sense, the soul is not the body. The soul resides within the body. And when the soul, um, when the body dies, the soul is something that is dealt with by God and by God alone. Mm -hmm. And so this is huge going forward. Um, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 18, if you're taking notes, is a very similar passage. Even in the Old Testament, there's a um, distinction made between the soul and the body. Very similar language that Jesus uses here in Matthew 10, 28. So what I want to do just going forward now is we can break this into didactic teachings where it's just explicitly taught and said, this is what happens to you after you die. We're going to just clearly teach it. And then we'll break it into another category of descriptive teachings where in passing, there's some narrative that happens which describes people who have already died. And it's not so much explicit teachings, but we can still draw a lot of things from it as to what happened to people after they die. And these are just a sampling of passages, but again, we'll break it into didactic teachings, explicit, and then more descriptive teachings. So, yeah, um, what's what's one that we have if we can put in the didactic kind of explicit teaching category? Yeah, so the first one would be in Philippians chapter 1. Um, many people are probably familiar with this passage. So um, Philippians chapter 1, I'll start in verse 21. It says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh... This means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Hmm. So right there, he clearly says, like, he wants to depart, which would mean die, and be with Jesus. Mm. But it's more needful for him to stay in the flesh. Mm. So yeah. think think of it this way. If so number one, he's saying being with Jesus, he's making a distinction between being with Jesus and being in the in his body. Mm -hmm. Because if he's talking about want to be with Jesus, like I want to soul my soul to sleep and then wake up with Jesus in my new body, well then he would have just said that, but he mm -hmm. literally just made a distinction between his body, mm -hmm. physical body, and being with Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So right. I think 
in Paul's mind, it's pretty clear mm-hmm. that he's seeing when he dies, he's going to immediately be with Jesus. Yes. Yeah. Amen. So. Right. And that gets us to our second passage as well, which it, it goes hand in hand exactly with what you just said. Second um, Corinthians chapter five, <clears throat> wonderful passage. And uh, we just want to look at maybe the first uh, six, seven verses. Um, so right off the bat from the beginning, he says, for we know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. Now, this earthly tent we're going to see is describing our physical existence, our bodies that we have, these temporary, fleshly, um, earthy bodies that we have that we will one day be departed from. And he says, we have this earthly tent. <clears throat> you see Peter pick up this language as well, and he says, I'm soon going to depart from this tent. We live in a very frail, fragile tent, that we, but we have a mansion awaiting us. You know, um, So right now we're in this tent that you know, can easily get blown over if any of you guys go camping. You know, you get home and you're like, wow, this house is really stable compared to that little tent that I was sleeping in. And so we have this tent, he says. If it's torn down, what do we have? We have a building from God, a house that is not made with hands eternal in the heavens. And so he's comparing the two, what we have ahead of us as opposed to what we have right now. Then verse two, for indeed in this house, this body, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as having put it on, we will not be found naked. So this term is going to be very important, this naked term, because right now Paul is saying, we don't want to take off this tent and just stand naked. We actually want to go from one clothing to the next. And he doesn't want to have any even intermediate period where we're naked. So he says, in this period we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as having put it on, we will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us his spirit as a pledge. So we could stop right there and already make a case for the fact that when we die, we are not going to be unclothed, but we are actually going to go into the presence of the Lord and be further clothed, further clothed, even while we await our resurrected body, where not God is not going to leave us apart from a house. Now, That's explicit even in and of itself, but if we were just to look at verse 8, Paul continues this idea and he says, picks up right where Isaac just left off in Philippians chapter 1. He says, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And so there is this idea that once I'm absent from the body, I'm not going to be unclothed, but I'm actually going to be wrapped around in the arms of Jesus Christ with my Lord and Savior immediately, not in this intermediate period of waiting, but immediately clothed with my Father in heaven, absent from the body, but present with the Lord. Beautiful, beautiful passage. Um, And I would just say, just add one more to this, and then we can get to some of the more descriptive teachings. But Luke, um, Jesus, you have him hanging on the cross and, you know, uh, crucified between two criminals, two thieves, and seems like they both begin mocking him, but at some point, one of the thieves actually grows repentant in his heart, and Jesus, the great evangelist, even winning souls to his dying breath, bringing somebody else into the kingdom of God at the very, very bitter end when most of us would probably just be overwhelmed in our suffering and our evangelistic efforts are over, and Jesus Christ is still bringing people into his kingdom. 
And so the man says to him in verse 42, he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, Jesus could respond and say, I will in the future, later, down the road, sometime, you're going to be in my kingdom. But listen to what he says. He actually attaches a time stamp to it. And Jesus, he says to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, some people have tried to move the comma because there's no commas in the Greek. And so they'll say, truly, truly, I say to you today, comma, you shall be with me in paradise. One problem with that is if you look at all of the truly, truly, or verily, verily statements that Jesus says throughout his whole ministry, he never says, truly, truly, I say to you today, such and such and such. Every single time it's truly, truly, I say to you, such and such and such. So the today is never used in a, I'm telling you this today. He doesn't say that. He just says, truly, truly, listen up. I'm telling you something right now, such and such and such. And so the same thing is happening here. He's saying, truly, truly, I say to you, such and such. And that such and such in this scenario is today you shall be with me in paradise. Now you ask, where did Jesus go after he died? Was How was this criminal with him? Didn't he descend into hell as we confess in the Apostles' Creed? And, you know, we maybe see elsewhere. Depends on how you see it, but ultimately Jesus does sometimes use the word me in relation to when it's not me. Paul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Yeah. Paul wasn't literal. Saul wasn't literally persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting his people, but Jesus is so one with his people that he can say, you're persecuting me, right. Paul, right. Saul. Um, yeah. and, and the same thing, you know, if you think of Jesus as omnipresent, even if his, in some aspects of him did descend into hell, Jesus fully still omnipresent is still in heaven, potentially how you want to see that. But nonetheless, we could parse that out a little bit more. But at the end of the day, Paul, Jesus says today, indicating that this criminal was brought into the kingdom that very day. He died and was not in soul sleep, but he was brought immediately into paradise. Just such a beautiful thing that one day we're going to meet this criminal who was hanging on the cross in heaven and glory, new heavens, new earth, and we'll be like, you're the one, the unnamed criminal in this. Ah, oh, man, hallelujah, yeah. we heard so much about you. You know, like, that's cool. Um, But he's gonna, yeah. he's with Jesus in paradise, not in the future, but today, Jesus said. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. That's awesome, man. Yep. So let's get into some descriptive teaching. So these are ones that aren't explicitly teaching what happens mm-hmm. to a person after they die. Um, but it is descriptive, meaning we can read it and see the implications and kind of what's being assumed in the text. Yes. Yep. Yep. So the first one is Revelation 6, 9. And I, we got to be careful when we are dealing with apocalyptic and mm-hmm. poetic literature. Amen. Yep. Um, but that doesn't mean we still can't draw conclusions from it. Mm-hmm. You just got to be, you know, very careful and understand the type of genre it is. Yes. But nonetheless, this is what it says: Revelation six nine and following. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, "Lord, the one who is holy and true." How long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. So it seems to imply here where it says, They cried out with a, Lord, uh, with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if they're sleeping, <laughs> I mean, this 
<laughs> if this passage had assumed the idea that these souls were sleeping, it would be very weird. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it seems to just go right out and say these saints who have been killed are conscious and they're um, just pleading with the Lord to avenge their blood. Um, and it wouldn't really make that poetic, apocalyptic literature wouldn't really make sense if the, if it would literally be the exact opposite mm -hmm. in reality, where mm -hmm. they wouldn't be talking or saying anything. Right. Um, so, yeah, that passage would seem to indicate um, that that there's a consciousness in our souls. Right. Yep. Um, yeah. And I agree. And, and the next passage that we'll look at, um, for those of you who are listening, this is a this is a pretty heavy Bible. We're we're just jumping from passage to passage, but I hope you're tagging along with us and maybe taking notes or at least uh, mentally following uh, with us. But absolutely, these passages are passages that, um, like you said in Revelation, we gotta we do have to be careful with how we interpret Revelation and also this uh, parable that Jesus is about to tell this story, but. Nonetheless, as we draw conclusions from what are clear in Scripture, we can kind of take some of these stories and draw more stronger conclusions, whereas if the Bible never taught what we're advocating, we'd have to be a little bit more careful. But because of the fact that the Bible does teach this, I think that we're maybe free to draw a little bit more clear um, conclusions from this. And so what I want to go to is in Luke chapter 16, um, and Jesus tells the very famous story of uh, the rich man and Lazarus, um, you know, and so the rich man lived sumptuously all his life, but uh, it says Lazarus laid at his gate covered with sores, longing to be fed from the crumbs which were falling at the rich man's table, and the dogs were coming and licking his sores. See, the dogs actually treating Lazarus better than anybody else was. The dogs were actually even able to spend time with him and lick his wounds. Um, so poor Lazarus, it says, now, now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man died also and was buried. And so we have death that happens. Lazarus is dead. His body is dead. Potentially his body is just still laying at the gate. Nobody cares for him. He doesn't have anybody to bury him. Angels carry him away, though. Emphasis on, on him. Abraham's bosom. He's carried away to it. But the rich man died also. When he was buried, he probably had a proper burial. So we have two dead bodies. But there's existence after this and there's going to be even a time stamp but verse 23 it says in hades he lifted up his eyes being in torment this is the rich man after his body is dead and even buried now he's in hades lifting up his eyes in torment and he saw abraham so we have some very clear things he's in torment he lifted up his eyes he sees uh, abraham and he's far away and lazarus in his bosom Okay, and now when it says, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip uh, his finger in the water to cool my tongue for I'm in agony in this flame. And so he's in this experience of some sort of suffering. Even though he's departed from his body, he's in a place of anguish and pain and suffering. Now, Abraham goes on and says that there's a, a great chasm between us. Nobody can cross over from here to there. But listen to what he says, though. This is very, very interesting. Verse 27, it says, And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. He wants Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to go evangelize, go tell, warn his family at his father's house. Because he says this, For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. 
This is where a timestamp comes in because he wants his he wants Lazarus to go tell his brothers who right now are walking about on the earth, alive, living, well. And he wants Lazarus to go tell them and warn them because he still has this love for his family that he wants to warn them. He wants to warn them who are alive currently while he is dead, but yet still conscious. So again, I just want to draw that conclusion. We can unpack this parable more, but nonetheless, the indication here that we can draw, and I feel like we can be very confident in drawing this conclusion, is that this is a reality that Jesus wants to warn us about. He's saying, make sure that when you are living in this life, you are following the Lord, that you are, as we'll learn later in the Gospels and Paul's letters, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, repentant by faith, where you have everlasting life, and make sure you don't end up in a place of torment and treating your fellow human beings poorly, um, because when you do that, you're going to regret it, and you're actually going to wish that somebody could rise from the dead and go tell your family so that you can be warned, they can be warned and not come to this place as well. Conscious torment. Yeah. I think we can draw that conclusion. Yeah, and it just wouldn't make sense for that. That parable wouldn't make sense if the biblical teaching was that souls were just sleep and just not conscious Mm -hmm. and basically dead. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking, I thought of a passage. I don't know if um, we're mentioning this later or not, but... um, where Jesus is talking to the Sadducees who deny the resurrection and they just think when someone dies, they just don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And he says, haven't you read that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He's the God of, not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Amen. Right? So that would seem to Mm kind of imply that they're still living and Mm -hmm. they're active and conscious. And that actually leads us into our next (laughs) next passage, um, which kind of deals with that. This would be... So the last one that's kind of descriptive, but I think it's a pretty clear descriptive (laughs) thing, um, is Luke 9, verses 28 and following, which is the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus. This is what it says. About eight days after this conversation, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure when he was about to accomplish what he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who were standing with him, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this passage, we see Moses and Elijah. Mm-hmm. there. And first thing to note, the only one sleeping in this passage is the disciples. <laughs> <laughs> They're the only ones sleeping. <laughs> and the other thing is, we don't see them drinking any coffee. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they were mm-hmm. just waking up from their soul nap. Yep. I'm yep. pretty sure. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I think, um, I mean, it's the fact that they are there, like, like that'd be so weird if soul sleep is a reality like for them to be sleeping and then appear there in a in a body of some sort apparently Mm -hmm. and then or at least like maybe in the way that angels appear like it's not yeah you know whatever it is and then go back to bed Mm -hmm. (laughs) after Mm -hmm. that yeah like that'd be so weird (laughs) um but i think i think this just kind of echoes um 
really what the church has just confessed over all time, which we don't really get this in our Protestant, in our um, Baptist and like the traditions that are a little less connected to the more historical roots Mm of, I don't want to say less connected, but maybe less connected from the more traditions and the traditional side of of Christianity, Um, probably because we kind of have an allergic reaction to it because we just think Roman Catholic, Mm -hmm. but that's not Mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. It's our tradition. It's our heritage too. Mm -hmm. Um, But groups like Anglicans and Lutherans, they have, um, they have, they talk about the saints in a way as if they're still living and they're Mm -hmm. still there. And they see that the the departed believers is still part of the church and Mm -hmm. they're still with us, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. Um, even though we can't talk with them and we can't see them, um, they're still part of the church and they're still the saints. And there's like this connection that we have with the departed believers. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true and good, but you just really lose that if soul sleep is, mm-hmm. is true, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I, I just don't, yeah, I think that the church is totally on the other side of that issue mm-hmm. uh, and not in agreement with soul sleep, just historically and right now too. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyways. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, last off, we want to get into some of the common objections. Mm-hmm. So why don't you take these, man? Um, so how about Lazarus? Wasn't he asleep? Right. In John John 11. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, yep. So you got the passage of uh, Lazarus being raised from the dead, and Jesus didn't come to him immediately, but he waits a few days to actually really show that this man is dead. Um, before he does his wonderful miracle in raising Lazarus from the dead with just a, a couple of words, Lazarus come out. Beautiful, beautiful passage. But yeah, John chapter 11, verse 11 this is what Jesus says. This is this he said. And after he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of his sleep. And then later he clearly indicates to them, no, he, he's dead. The, the, the disciples were confused and he's like, no, he's he's dead. But um, proponents of soul sleep will say, yeah, you know, so he's asleep um, and Jesus is going to go wake him up. So we're free to use this um, theology, soul sleep. Interesting thing, though, is that if you just keep reading just a little bit down, verse 25, right in that same passage, John chapter 11, Jesus is talking to Martha. She runs out to him and then he begins saying to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And so... What I'm going to say is that even if you die, you're going to live. If you are in Christ, you are going to live. Um, our, our existence, our life, our eternal life that we're given, that we find in Jesus Christ, will continue whether or not we have a body. We are in the hands of God, and our life, our living, is not dependent upon our external bodily shell that we currently have. In Christ, we will live even if we die. But this is an awesome passage, too. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 10, um, Paul seems to touch on this exact same thing and even maybe says it a little bit more explicitly. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 10, but we'll just even back up for a second to verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse 10, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together. With him, and so we get this idea of whether you're alive in the shell of the body or asleep, dead. Asleep is just a euphemism for death. 
in the Bible that whether you're awake or asleep, alive or dead, you're going to live in Christ. And so it doesn't matter whether you're awake or asleep. This is a wonderful passage to use and, sh- and to sit down with a person who is a proponent of soul sleep and just say, look, Paul says explicitly, whether you're awake or asleep, you're going to live and you're alive together with Jesus Christ. Beautiful passage. Um, and I think that these these two verses, First uh, John or John chapter 11, verse 25 and First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 10, really can speak into somebody who is a proponent of soul sleep and just say, you know, look, yeah. Whether you die, even if you die, you're going to live and you are alive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. Cool. Um, well, what about Ecclesiastes chapter 9? Because mm. Solomon seems to indicate that that when someone dies, there's just no consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and wasn't Solomon the wisest man ever? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yep. <laughs> how can yep. he be wrong? <laughs> yeah. How can he be wrong? Yep. That's. I actually sat down with the Seventh-day Adventist pastor a while back and... Um, he was a great man, and I, I believe he's saved and um, knew the Bible in and out, very sharp. But that was one of the things he said when we talked about soul sleep, is he said, Solomon, wisest man ever. How, how, what are we going to say he's wrong? Because they read a verse like this, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward for their memory is forgotten. Big verse, you know, and, and on this face value, I think it's, you know, I can see how they can come to that conclusion. Verse 10 also, same chapter. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. And so those who go to the grave, is he's saying there's no wisdom, planning, activity, anything like that, knowledge in Sheol. Now, I want to just frame this out and not to dismiss Scripture in any way. Ecclesiastes is a beautiful book, and so we want to uphold it as part of our canon inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so nothing I'm about to say is against that. I just want to point out, though, that with a, with a poetic book, we must interpret poetry in light of clarity all the time. Poetic books of the Bible must be interpreted in light of clarity. And so the pa- many, many passages that we've shared with you already hopefully show you that there is a clear teaching that the Bible teaches that we immediately after, whether you're righteous or unrighteous, you depart and you are conscious after you leave the body. So saying that, also Ecclesiastes is a book that really spends its whole entirety exploring the futile end of all things apart from being united with the one true living God. He says, I've, I've examined and I've walked down the, the paths of knowledge, knowing everything you could know. I worked hard. I accumulated wealth and masses. I you know, ate, drank, and was merry. All of it is nothing. It's futile. It's vanity. Vanity, vanity, vanity. Everything he says. And then finally, you, know, see, you see it woven through the book, but especially at the end, you see everything is vanity. Unless you are living united with the one and true living God, it's all vanity. And so he's just basically showing how every path is a dead end. He's using these very extreme terminologies to say, no matter what path you go down, no matter what your life looks like, apart from a life that's united with the one and true living God, it's vanity. It's a dead end. And so he's using extremes, extremes here to say, if you follow down this path, when you're dead, you're just dead. You know, and he actually doesn't even really indicate a resurrection here either. And so if we're going to take this literally, we're just going to say, all right, he's, you're dead. And so we don't really take this poetic book with 
incredible having it be the underpinning or the foundational underpinning of our theological constructs. In actuality, we need to do the opposite. We need to put the clear foundational passages at the bottom as the the structure and then interpret the the poetry through that lens. That's how I would speak to that. Solomon awesome. still holding on to his perfect he's the he's the great you know wisest man who's ever lived you know like Jesus except for Jesus you know but like we just have this beautiful wonderful uh man of God who, who wrote tons of scripture and obviously fell later in his life and you know, work all that out how you will but nonetheless yeah very wise and we don't have to undercut any of that to also still hold to the fact that the de- the dead are fully conscious yeah, that's good. All right, one last objection. Okay. <clears throat> so it seems that in uh, Ezekiel 18.4 and 1 Peter 3.20, the soul is referring to the entirety of a human being. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. How do we deal with that? Absolutely, yeah. 1 Peter 3.20 talks about like you know uh, the, the times of Noah when eight souls were saved, and doesn't seem to indicate that there's any difference between their bodies. The rest of the souls perished in the water, but these souls were saved. And so like I hinted at earlier, and I believe wholeheartedly that the Bible has different usages for the word soul. Sometimes soul is used in the more general sense, broad, um, and we have to let that speak as it is. Uh, Ezekiel 18.4 and uh, many other passages seem to refer to the soul as encapsulating the whole entire human being itself in one fail swoop, one word to encapsulate all of them. But this cannot make us reject the more specific usages where Jesus himself specifically and very clearly makes a difference between the two, as we read in John or Matthew chapter 10. There is a difference between the soul and the body, and Jesus zooms in and gives us the more specific and more clear than the more general terminology that's used quite frequently, admittedly, in the Bible. But we cannot, on the account of all of these general usages, neglect the times when it's very specifically hashed out that there is a difference between the soul and the body. Um, so the clear teaching of the New Testament that the dead, both the righteous and the unrighteous, are conscious and awaiting the reunification with their resurrection, resurrected bodies is very clearly presented. And so we have to acknowledge this and sit under the beauty of this, really, the fact that I cannot wait till next episode when we talk about just the glories that are to come with our resurrected bodies, new heaven, new earth, new creation, just what that's going to look like for us. Um, but absolutely, we believe and we confess the truth that Bible teaches that, yeah, your grandma who died, who was a believer right now, is fully in the arms of Jesus Christ, um, wonderfully in his presence, beautiful, enjoying the, the great comforts of, of God, all the while awaiting something even better, a resurrected body that's going to be in the presence of Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever, but with bodily, a bodily resurrection. What a, what a glory that's going to be. Um, and I can't wait to talk about that next episode too. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah dude. Yeah. yeah, awesome. Well, that's all for today's episode. Consider subscribing for more simply Christian content. And until next time. Oh.